You can be seated. And kids, K through second, if you're going to our story time, you can start making your way toward the story time. And as you're going, I want you to be thinking about three things that you're afraid of. So what are you afraid of? Three things you're afraid of. And uh, folks who are staying, you can be thinking about the things that you're afraid of. Uh, one of the interesting kind of sociological studies is every year, uh, you know, the, the national, whatever, the national psychology uh, group, they do different surveys and uh, survey Americans' uh, top 10 fears. And uh, it's interesting the things that come on the list and go off the list. Like a, uh, two years ago, for the first time, fear of social settings made it into the top 10. Fear of disease made it into the top 10. Uh, things that are still there, some perennials up at the top, are the fear of speaking in front of people. Uh, the fear of death is up there. The fear of heights. The only, uh, only animal or living thing that's on there is the fear of spiders. I thought surely snakes would be on there, but maybe snakes got put aside for social settings. But you think about those fears, you think, all right, are you really afraid? So take like speaking in front of people. So like right now, for most of you, like if, if I called your name and asked you to come up here and finish the sermon, that would cause a certain level of panic. You know, there's a couple of you who'd be like, all right, finally, we're going to get some intelligence in this room. <laughs> But for most people, they start depending. Think, all right, well, well, why? Why is that such a stronghold fear? Is it really that, or is there something underneath the fear? You know, it's kind of like the fear of heights and fear of flying. They're both there. Is it really the heights, or is you know the old line is it's not the falling I'm afraid of; it's the sudden stop at the end. And so, right, so what's the real fear? So we want to think about that because we're looking at this section in Exodus. And this whole section, I think it's one literary unit that runs from chapter 4, verse 18, all the way to 7, 13. So one kind of block. And we did the first part last week. We're picking up the second part this week. So in some sense, you'll have to kind of almost like remember, do you remember what it was like before streaming services and you had to watch a show and it only came on at a certain time during the week? And then it was awful, kids. You had to wait until that time the very next week. So like Cynthia and I, we used to gather when we were dating, we'd have parties, like we had uh, lost parties and 24 parties, and you'd go and you'd watch and it was so much intensity build up and they'd just always leave you in this cliffhanger and then you'd have to wait. So sometimes you gotta go back, so let's, let's remember previously on 24, like what we saw in chapters four up to the end of six, we made it to six verse nine last week, and we see Moses is despondent. He's responded to God's call, but it has not gone well. And you kind of get his emotional state in chapter five, verse 22, where he says, oh Lord, why have you done this evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. So Moses is in the pit of despair. He's despondent. And Aaron has been drugged into this, and maybe he's off to the side thinking, what in the world has my brother gotten me into? The people are utterly discouraged. You get what they, where they are in chapter 6. Verse 9, that Moses comes and speaks these words of life to the people, this incredible promise that God gives him to speak to them. But it says, but the people of Israel did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. 
So here you have the people, and we looked at the, the framework for this section. I think a helpful framework is Jesus' parable of the four soils, and Satan's primary strategy is when the word of promise, the word of God goes out, he wants to just snatch it up so it can't enter into your heart and produce fruit. And he snatched up this word of promise that's given in chapter 6, verse 1 through 9, this incredible promise where God repeats uh, seven different times in a little section. He says, say this to Israel, I will do this. I will bring them out. I have heard their groanings. I am coming. I'm going to deliver them. And they, they can't hear it. And so we're at the end of kind of the, the first act, and we've had the first major confrontation between Moses and Pharaoh, and things just have not gone well. And then where we come, we have, it's almost like the, the writer just slams on the brakes, and then we get a genealogy, and then we have Moses repeating the same complaints that he's brought up in chapter 3 and chapter 4. So we you think, all right, what's going on here? Some strange things happening. And there's three things I want to kind of walk us through as we unpack this, this section. First, I want us to see that one of the things it's doing is giving us the credentials you need to serve. So the credentials to serve. So let's pick up the framing of the genealogy. So starting in 6 verse 10. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh king of Egypt to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. So God comes and gives them a command. And he throws it, this is a repetition, kind of the excuse. I can't do it. I don't have the skill. I'm of uncircumcised lips. And notice the framing in verse uh, 29. The Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. So repeating that command and charge. And then here Moses repeats in verse 30. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? So for Moses, he's thinking that the credentials I need to serve you and to fulfill this calling is skillful communication. There's knowledge I don't have. There's skill I don't have. I am not a man of words. I don't have the skill. And he uses this image of uncircumcised lips. You think that's really kind of strange. What might that mean? You know, a couple different commentators like Robert Alters uh, thinks it's probably ceremonial uncleanness. So kind of like Isaiah, you know, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. His lips haven't been purified. Another rabbi, uh, Robert Sachs, thinks it might be a metaphor, uh, almost meaning like one of Moses' kind of issues is when he gets so uh, anger, so when anger rises up so much, he should kind of, sounds like what we say to our, our little kids, use your words. Now, use your, he can't use his words, he just kind of explodes in action. So you can see three key areas of his life, like when he uh, sees the injustice with the Egyptians in chapter 2, and he, he attacks when he comes down the mountain in 34 and slams and breaks the Ten Commandments, and then when he strikes the rock uh, going in. So he thinks maybe it's some type of uh, Moses is recognizing that he can't, like once he gets so uh, uh, impassioned, like his lips just kind of close up and he can't, he can't speak. Either way... He's, he's repeating this continual um, excuse that he doesn't have what it takes to do what God has asked him to do and told him to do. And it'd be worth just pausing and saying, so Moses, what are you afraid of? He said, well, I'm afraid of the Israelites not listening to me and Pharaoh not listening to me. So it's kind of public speak. I'm afraid to get up and speak. And then everybody, uh, no one who I speak to is going to listen 
this sort of thing. I, is that the real fear underneath the fear? Or is there something more going on? There's a uh, psychologist I've been reading uh, lately. He wrote a book, a wonderful book called Fearless Golf. Now, this is, in one sense, it's not about golf at all. It's about life. And he was a professor at Rollins. His name's uh, Gio Valiente. And he's, uh, he's kind of, he, his area of psychology is social cognitive theory. He's really interesting kind of character because he spent, he kind of made his name working with PGA Tour players and then started working with uh, Steve Cohen, who's a hedge fund manager. And he's the guy who the, the show Billions is kind of loosely uh, related to, and um, kind of his social cognitive theory, uh, what, they, what they try and always get at is what are the core motivations that's driving you? So you maybe have heard the book like Start With Why, like Simon Sinek, you gotta, you gotta find your why. They've kind of taken that and popularized it and turned it in a little way that they don't think is quite right. But the idea is, you know, with everybody, you, you kind of drive down to the core and what, uh, Dr. Geo says every person he's worked with has, they think you can reduce everybody's motivation into one or two buckets, which is really intriguing to me. He says everybody kind of has one or two buckets. One is a, uh, an ego-driven bucket, and then one we call like a, a craft or um, mastery-driven bucket. And everybody um, the, in the ego-driven bucket, you're, you're ultimately motivated by external things where you find your sense of self is dependent on those external things. So like in sports, it could be the score. With uh, hedge fund managers, it's your profit and loss. With just people in general, it's how you're being evaluated by others. It's ego-driven. And then the other bucket is, is kind of mastery-driven. Do you care about the, the, the thing for the thing? It says one of the primary ways you can tell which one you are is how do you respond when you fail? Like when you fail, do you feel this deep sense of shame and embarrassment? Then there's a good chance you're doing what you're doing is, is ego-driven. Or do you feel a sense of kind of deep curiosity, wondering why that happened? How can you learn? How can you grow from that? It's very interesting. And I wonder if uh, we could go back in time and bring Moses and set him down on Dr. Geo's couch. And uh, he started explaining, all right, well, why are you resistant to this call that you've heard from the Lord to do this thing that he's asked you to do? And he might say, well, because no, nobody's going to listen to me. The, the Israelites won't listen. Pharaoh won't listen. He might think, well, like, so what? Like, why do you care how they respond? I wonder if he'd put him in that ego-driven bucket, because it's interesting to me that when God comes to encounter Moses and he tells him, I've heard of the groanings of my people, I want you to go do something about it, Moses' response isn't heartbroken over the groanings of the people. It's, what if they don't listen to me? Well, what if this has nothing to do with you? It's about them. Or he's not kind of heartbroken. Oh, the, the problem is that the Lord's name and glory is not known. It needs to be known. And that Pharaoh is suppressing the glory of God being spread on the earth. The problem is I might try something and embarrass myself. So Moses has to get to a point where he's willing to obey. What's it really about? What's the fear really is about? Is it about the thing or is it somehow 
about, about him, about you. And then what, what's going to happen here in the brilliant storytelling is he's going to give us the credentials for Moses, for the people of Israel. He's afraid they're not going to listen, so why should they listen to him? And then the credentials for Pharaoh. But when you're just reading through the story, it's kind of jarring. Because you're going through the story, you've hit this action, and then we'll pick up in verse 14 of chapter 6. From 14 all the way to 25 is the genealogy. Starts rolling the credits. You think, wait, what? It's kind of like in the original Star Wars, you get all the way to the point where Obi-Wan Kenobi and Darth Vader are fighting. Darth Vader kills Obi-Wan Kenobi, and you hear Luke scream, Ben! And then the credits start rolling. You think, hmm, that, you know. Maybe you know more about movies than I do, but that might not be the best time for, for this. What's going on here? You know, some critical scholars even think it's just kind of an insertion that, that shouldn't be there. But I think one of the things that's happening is this laying out for both Moses and the people, in one sense, their criteria, or uh, they, the, we'll see in a minute, the criteria for success. But you kind of read through these. I'm not going to uh, read through... Uh, the names, but there are a couple things that I think are intriguing as you kind of pull out. You can look at the very beginning as you read through it. And one thing that's fascinating, it's not just a generalized genealogy. It focuses in on uh, Moses and Aaron's family. So the tribe of Levi. Start pulling out some of the names, and what's intriguing is some of the names are very kind of high and lofty. They mean, th mean, mean things like, God has aided us, and God will be exalted, and God is my treasure. And then some are kind of a little more earthly, like uh, the Palu just means extraordinary. And maybe my favorite is Cora. Cora means baldy. So, and then you get kind of a focus on uh, Aaron's family, the three main branches, the Kohites, Merai, and Gershom. And those become the three branches that handle all of the, the normal, day-to-day, -day, regular operations of the tabernacle. Once it gets uh, put, one, one family, they're the interior designers in charge of the decorations. One are the structural engineers in charge of the, the, the pillars and the planks and the building, the structural integrity of it. And one group's in charge of the curtains, in essence, like the walls and the, the roof. They each have their roles, responsibilities. Each family has a clearly defined duty. You also highlight a couple of the children that come out of Aaron. You know, Korah, Baldy, maybe this, this leads into, uh, he was not content to where God has placed him. And uh, he was ambitious and he wanted more recognition and thought Moses and Aaron were standing in the way. But uh, he rebelled against Moses and, and uh, was really rebelling against the Lord. So they're showing that this is what real success looks like. The, the center of the genealogy is verse 20. That's the heart, Moses and then Aaron. And then what's fascinating is you don't get anything about Moses' line. It tells us about Aaron's line. And I wonder if that's not telling us about kind of what's neat. You know, there's just certain seasons where a, a larger-than-life character, kind of like Moses, is needed to rise up and do kind of this remarkable thing. But for the normal, everyday maintenance, you need, uh, you, you need people in Aaron's family, kind of the, the regular rhythm, you know, kind of the founder versus those who maintain and renew. But here you look at the family, and the real credentials are faithfulness where God has placed you. Understand that God has placed you somewhere and will you be faithful in that place? So you think about what are the credentials needed for success in life and God's kingdom is being faithful in where he's placed you.
I mean, he's placed you in a certain job, in a certain family, on a certain street, in a certain classroom. What does it mean to be faithful in those places? All right, the second thing to notice as we move through is the criteria for success. We get to the point where Moses has to obey. So pick up in chapter 7, and the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you. So this is his task, his charge. And your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, my children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. Then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. And Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old, and Aaron 83 years old, when they spoke to Pharaoh. So we have this whole season of building up and coming to this place, and in some sense, uh, the key line is verse 6 and verse 7, Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded and this becomes the core criteria for success. See, Moses thinks what he needs is skillful speech to persuade, but what he ultimately needs is obedience, to obey. All the work, all the time, all the preparation was to get them to the point where they are willing to obey. And then another interesting little turn. Do you notice now they finally tell us how old Moses is? And you just wonder, why? You know, in some sense, we've had to bring this in, but if you just have Genesis and Exodus, you, you don't know how old Moses is. Like, you know, he was weaned early, but you don't know how old he is when he kind of goes out to meet the Egyptians. You don't know how old he is when he flees to Midian, when he gets married, when he has children, when he meets God of the burning bush. Like, you don't know any of that. Now, we pull in other sources that tell us, we think, all right, why are we just now finding out? And I wonder if one of the things he's trying to tell us here is that it's because none of those things were decisive. Often, at least in Genesis and then in Exodus in the Bible, uh, you're given the age of kind of the key character once they come to that crucial moment that's going to be the defining moment in their life. And it's kind of like up until this point, everything has just been preparation. So, for example, in Abraham, we're told in Genesis 17 that he was 75 years old when God first called him out and sent him, and he heard that command of promise. So everything was preparation up until that point, and that becomes the decisive moment in his life. Joseph, we're told he is 30 years old when he ascends into Pharaoh's court. Everything, all the difficulties and the sorrow and the struggle had been preparation, so he'd be ready for that moment. And then here we're told that Moses is 80. He has two seasons of 40-year blocks. 40 years in Pharaoh's court, 40 years in Midian in the wilderness. And it's just intriguing to think about kind of the symbolic power of that number 40. You know, why 40? 
You think biblically like 40 days of flood. Rain comes for 40 days or 40 years in the wilderness or Moses 40 days up on Mount Sinai or Jesus 40 days in the wilderness or even the gestation process for a healthy baby. It's 40 weeks in the womb and often that number 40 is kind of symbolic of a place of silent transformation where you're, you're, you're off and you're off to the side and it's an it's a incubation period where you're being transformed and formed. It was interesting, one of the interviews I was listening with Dr. Gio, he was talking about one of the hardest things to do for adults is to change behavior patterns. And he said, so if it's something that's pretty easy you want to shift, you, you probably need to commit to about 40 days where you do the same thing every day for 40 days. But he said, if it's something that's deep and ingrained in you, it's probably going to take longer. And you probably need to commit every day to about three to three and a half years. I thought, huh, it's interesting. Small changes will take about 40 days. Larger changes take about 40 months. So I wonder, there's just some symbolic power to that number. And here Moses has gone through this dual incubation period. Maybe some people just need longer than others. But the whole goal is to get him to a point where verse 6 can be true. And Moses did what the Lord said. And that becomes the defining criteria of his life. Things fascinating. You turn to the end of the book of Exodus and ten times in chapters 39 it says, and, the, and Moses did according to the word of the Lord. And then seven times in chapter 40 it reiterates, and Moses did according to the word of the Lord of the Lord. This becomes the defining mark of his life. So think about your own life, those seasons. Maybe it didn't follow 40 days exactly, or 40 months exactly, or 40 years exactly, but those seasons of silent incubation was behind the scenes where the Lord was working. In so many of those seasons, the point is to get you to a place just like Moses, where you're willing to obey and do what the Lord has said. D.L. Moody kind of somewhat tongue-in-cheek, says that Moses spent the first 40 years of his life in Pharaoh's court thinking that he was somebody. He spent the next 40 years in the desert learning that he was nobody. And the final 40 years of his life learning what God can do with nobodies who know that they're nobodies. So how long did it take to get them ready so they were ready? And they keep going as they go, look in verse... Six and Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says, do you prove yourself by working a miracle? This is what the world always says. Now it's time to prove yourself. This is why it's so easy to fall in those ego buckets because we're, we're trying to prove ourselves. And so he said, prove yourself by working a miracle. Then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded them. So now we're kind of ready. Uh, the team is now set. You got Moses, you got Aaron, you got God. They're firmly in place. Each is pulling in their own direction. In chapter 7, God has clearly delineated roles and responsibilities. Moses, here's what you're going to do. Aaron's going to do this. This is what I'm going to do. Now we're finally ready for the confrontation with Pharaoh that's going to last from this point in chapter 7 all the way to chapter 15. So now the next big block, and what we're going to do is get a little prelude to the ten plagues come in this first 
confrontation. So they tell them to do that. And then notice what happens in verse 10. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers and the magicians of Egypt also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. So this kind of final scene that's transitioning us from the preparation period to, uh, in essence, Act 2 and the confrontation. So you have um, one of the key things to notice in this final scene of confrontation, it's not just Moses versus Pharaoh or Israel versus Egypt. At the very core of this confrontation is God and Satan. You know, in the first six chapters, God has prepared and positioned himself to strike a decisive blow against Satan. And what we're going to see in the next span is Ephesians 6, 12 kind of manifest in the physical world. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Now that spiritual battle is about to come out into the world. There's a spiritual dimension to this struggle. And this little story is giving us a prelude or a picture of all the themes that are about to play out. So you have Moses and Aaron, their obedience. That's going to be the, the, the fundamental criteria for the success of their mission. you got the counterfeit miracles that Satan is going to work. You have the superior power of God over them. You have the perpetual hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And then you have this warning that just as it's kind of the symbolic picture that just as Pharaoh's snakes are swallowed up by Moses' staff, so will Pharaoh's army be swallowed up by the Red Sea. So you have this little image, this little story. Uh, this is for the, the, the little boys in the house. My, I think my boys left, but uh, there's Benjamin. They love, Sam's favorite color is green, and his favorite animal is alligators or dinosaurs. And so there is some debate about what is this serpent? Uh, it's actually, it's an interesting word, because it's not necessarily serpent. You could translate crocodile or monster. So there's some kind of strength. What, what is this? Of course, the point it's making is not necessarily uh, zoological, but it's theological. The serpent is a symbol of Pharaoh's authority and power. So this is a very symbolic picture of what the confrontation between God and Satan. You know, the, the, the snake, the serpent, if you would have polled the average Egyptian, what are you afraid of? Number one on the list would have been snakes. So none of them really cared about heights. I guess only the people who had to build the pyramids cared about heights. But they, were care, they cared about snakes. And part of the power and the mystique and the mystery of the Pharaoh is that he, uh, he like, what he presented is that he's the one who can channel and harness the power of the thing that is most terrifying the people. So that's why he was all decorated with snakes on the headdress and cobras uh, all over the place. There was a deep fear, and then he was the one who kind of channeled that fear. In fact, this is a couple generations later, but there's a famous prayer that Pharaoh would pray daily. He said, oh, great one, oh, magician, oh, fiery snake, let there be terror of me like terror of thee. Let there be fear of me like the fear of thee. Let there be awe of me like the awe of thee. Let me rule. Let me be a leader of the living. Let me be powerful. Let me be a leader of the spirits. So he's kind of channeling the, the demonic energy 
of the serpent. And what Aaron is doing is Aaron is taking that symbol of the, the king's majesty and he's mocking it and breaking it right in front of him. And again, the modern parallel would be like if a group that the United States was at war with somehow got into the Oval Office and took a bald eagle and broke its neck and threw it down on the uh, president's desk. That, would be a, that has a certain symbolic weight to it. And that's what's happening here. And I think one of the things God is doing is giving, their, uh, giving the credentials to Israel, giving the credentials to Pharaoh. You want to see a sign. You want us to prove yourself. Here it is. And it's direct and it's confrontational. And this is often how God takes the throne of a sinner's heart. There's often something that we've elevated to that throne and it gets attacked. You know, if we crave power, one of the things God will do is show us how weak we really are. If we crave wealth, he'll show us how impoverished we really are. If we crave pleasure, he'll show us how fleeting these things really are. And then you take the magicians. The magicians can kind of do something uh, like that. But we'll kind of move on about what was happening there. But ultimately, the symbolism here is that the Exodus was a demonstration of God's triumph over Satan. But this is not his greatest demonstration over the things that bind us in fear. You know, they were uh, afraid of the serpents and the snakes, but he's going to show his power over them. I was intrigued by the, the number one fear that Americans have. That's probably the root fear fueling all the others was the fear of death. So what do you do about the fear of death? How does God make a demonstration of his power over that tyrannical ruler? See, God has made a supreme demonstration of his power over Satan, not just here in the Exodus, but through the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. So even look at the story of Christ as another battle between Satan and God, where Satan opposed Jesus from the very beginning. Remember, almost from the day he was born, he used the power of government to send soldiers to try and kill him. And during his ministry, he used the power of his demons to try and derail him. And he even personally tempted Jesus in the wilderness. And at the cross, he used the power of the religious authorities to falsely accuse him. And then finally, God allowed Satan to put Jesus to death. But ultimately, that death turned out to be his biggest mistake because all uh, that he was doing was that he, or what he was doing was dying for our sins and then delivering us from the ultimate serpent, which is death. Jesus disarmed Satan's authority and made a public spectacle triumphing over him through the cross. And I wonder if Paul has this in the back of his mind, maybe this story where he says, then in order to prove that Jesus is not any longer under Satan's power, he was raised from the dead. And now he says, death has been swallowed up in victory. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. So this is the promise that we can all claim that we can now live under the light of the fear has been broken. And anytime we're tempted to fall in some type of spiritual attack, we know that Satan's power is real, but it's not absolute. His power over sin has been vanquished through the cross. His power over death has been swallowed up in the resurrection. And whenever we feel imprisoned by our sins and that we fear we're still in bondage, we can look to the ultimate one who defeated the serpent. 
So how should we respond? How should Pharaoh have responded? Pharaoh responds in verse 13, notice, but still his heart was hard. So that's the great danger is that we can encounter these things and our hearts can be hard. So we want to pray that we'll never have a hard heart so we can hear and respond, being sensitive to spiritual influences, warned by the love of God, sorry for sins, and willing to change. You know, in one sense, Dr. Geo's right, changing people's behaviors isn't just hard. Sometimes it's just impossible. But the, the problem of sin is that it creates a hard heart, but the glory of the gospel is that God has promised in the new covenant, I will take out the old heart, the heart of stone, and I will put in a heart of flesh that becomes sensitive and alive and aware of all of these spiritual realities. So let's take a moment and ask the Lord to help us not be afraid of the things that should no longer terrify us and to have soft, receptive hearts to respond to him. So Lord, we thank you for your grace and mercy. We thank you for your word and your triumphant victory over the power of sin, over the power of death, so we thank you that the ultimate thing that can cause fear has been swallowed up. And so we ask that you help us to know that and to live in the light of that reality. Know this we pray in Christ's holy name. Amen. And what Pharaoh, what Moses gave to Pharaoh was a sign of this great victory. And it was a sign of the staff swallowing up the other staffs. And what Jesus gave to us is a sign of his great victory. But this sign is a little more uh, normal, a little more everyday. It's the sign of just the bread and the wine. And the sign is that the bread was broken. Uh, and it's a sign that... Um, just as, as we experience brokenness from sin, one day we'll be put back together and made whole again. And then the wine is a sign, it's a symbol that this, this is a symbol of his blood that was shed for the forgiveness of sins so that we can encounter uh, his life. So here at Trinity we have four stations and when our servers are in place you come and we take the bread and then we dip. There'll be a gluten-free station in that back corner and uh, once we're in place you come.